0: Strange Brew Podcast, Season 1, Episode 120. It is Packer Chiefs. Hey, that's great. who are the chefs? Weekend at Lambeau Field. And what a difference three weeks makes, where three weeks ago we were talking about maybe a top three pick, and all of a sudden the offense is looking better, and Jordan Love looks more confident, and they're putting wins on the board, and they're on the In the Hunt graphic on NFL playoff picture graphics now. And they got more help this week. We'll talk about all of that, break down the game. The Packers are six-and-a-half-point home underdogs right now against the reigning Super Bowl champions at Lambeau Field on primetime Sunday night football. We will talk about a few Badger-related things. I know we did not do a podcast on Monday. We're going to talk more about that in a second. They got the Axe back, and they have a chance to really end the year on a pretty positive note. We will talk about Braylon Allen declaring for the NFL draft. Miles Burkett is in the transfer portal. Bucks in the in-season tournament. Got a win against Miami on Tuesday. Now it's knockout round in Milwaukee with the Knicks this coming Tuesday. We will break that down. Badgers Marquette weekend at the Kohl Center, number three in the country. Marquette, they did move up despite that loss to Purdue because they beat Kansas the day before. Lost a tight game to the number two team in the country. They move up to number three. Badgers are five and two going into that matchup. We've got some Brewer news. Devin Williams, reliever of the year, and are we on the verge today, maybe, of a landmark contract for the number two prospect in baseball, Jackson Churio. We will also make some picks. Let's go. On the ground, a chance here. Durham to Hardy to first. It's time. Yes. Yes. The yes. win. Yes. Here comes Melvin to the 25, to the 20. Gordon 15, 10, 5. Touchdown, Wisconsin. Record-breaking run. Morgan, to smash up the middle. Thanks He looks, he throws it. And And there is your Super Bowl dagger. Booker the drive, gets inside, cleans in. Backed away and stolen by Holiday. Phoenix has to foul. And a pinnacle ball throws it down. Swinging fly ball in the right center. Roxton is there. We've got a room at the top of the world tonight. The Milwaukee Bucks are NBA champions. All right, I do want to start the podcast today on a sour note. Just to get you in a good mood on a Friday, let's talk about something sad. We did not do a podcast on Monday, and I know we said we were going to, and I toyed around with the idea of doing what we did. I don't even know when it was, a week or two ago or three weeks ago where we did a .5 episode, a space filler episode. Oh, my wife and I had a good Thanksgiving weekend and then a really tough Thanksgiving weekend. We hosted Thanksgiving, which went great, and then we had some family and friends in town on Saturday, Friday into Saturday, which was also great. And then our weekend took a turn. Our 13-year-old, just turned 13 in August, German Shepherd Lab Mix Brewer passed away on Saturday night into Sunday, and we found him on Sunday morning. And it's just been brutal. It's been tough. He was not a young man. I've had some people ask me since we blogged about it. If you want the full story and just his backstory, I wrote a blog about it. I guess there are probably some people that just listen to this podcast and aren't aware of the blog. There is a Strange Brew blog that I've been writing in for, God, I don't know, 14 years. And then that is sort of the background to starting this podcast a year ago. So I wrote a blog about it on Monday. I'm pretty sure this has been the longest week of all time. I'm pretty sure it was Monday. If you want to read more about that and have a good cry, probably you could check that out if you want to. If you don't, that's fine too. But I figured we'd get this on the podcast as well. I guess when people ask you, you know, was it unexpected? I think that's one of the first things that listeners, when I talked about on the B93 morning show on Monday, and then just friends of ours have asked that we've had to tell over the course of the week. I think anytime a dog, a big dog, and he was a big dog gets past that 10-year-old, 11-year-old, 12-year-old, in his case, 13 years old in August. When you get past that mark as a big boy, you kind of are starting to steal yourself or eh, it's probably on the way. But it was unexpected, I guess I would say. I I did not expect to walk downstairs and have that on Sunday. And he was a kid, basically, to us. I know everybody has different opinions about animals and, you know, people treat dogs differently in different circumstances and whatever. And we, this was our, we adopted Brewer, well, we adopted Derek in the summer of 2011. We were going to a Brewer game, that's why he is named Brewer. And there's a Humane Society that's very close to Miller Park. And in the summer of 2011, June of 2011, we had been talking about, yeah, maybe getting a dog, and we were on our way to a Brewer game, a Sunday afternoon Brewer game, and we had some time and we weren't tailgating or whatever, so we thought we will just go to the Humane Society and take a look. Those famous last words, we'll take a look. And we met a few dogs, and we met Derek, his black lab, very handsome boy, 10-month-old dog, potty-trained, which was big. So not a puppy puppy, but still kind of a puppy at 9 or 10 months. And we had a good time with him in the meeting room they put you in. And honestly, like I wrote in the blog, we were set to leave. We thought, okay, we've got brewer tickets. We didn't expect to get a dog today. So we were on our way out, and I kind of glanced back And you could see a lot of folks were around his area, his crate or his cage or whatever. And it kind of dawned on us that if we don't adopt this dog, if we like this dog and we do not adopt this dog, we are not going to get a second chance to because he's a 10-month-old, potty-trained, black lab. He's good-looking, handsome boy, black lab. We found out later, shepherd Mix. He's out of here today. And if we think this is our dog, we need to do this now. And that's what we decided to do. We did it. We took action. We ran to the front desk and said we want to adopt Derek. And we had nothing. We were in no way prepared to adopt a dog that day. We needed everything. We needed the crate. We needed food. We needed a leash. We needed a collar. We needed to get every single item that you need to get when you adopt a dog. We did all of that. We didn't go to the game. And we drove back home on (laughs) I-43, threw our tickets out the window, and adopted this dog. And then renamed him Brewer. It was the best decision we ever made in our life. He was a dog unlike any other dog that I've had. I have not had a ton of dogs. I loved our dog growing up too, our dog Dexter, our Tibetan Terrier, when I was a kid. Loved him as well. Different relationship, obviously, when you're a kid growing up with a dog and then when you're in charge of a dog like we were with Brewer. He was just the sweetest, best boy that I've ever been in charge of. He was one of those dogs where you could trust him with anything. You could trust him not to run. You could trust him with any dog. He always entertained Any human being that came to our house, any dog that he encountered on a walk, anything, any animal, he had that perspective of this person or dog or cat is going to be my friend. He went into every meeting of any being with that on his brain. This person is going to be my friend. This dog is going to be my friend. And a lot of the time it worked out. And sometimes at the dog park it didn't work out like that and he was stunned. He was one of those kind of dogs, though, that you could take anywhere. You could trust him in any situation, He did not need a collar on for the most part. In most situations, you knew he wasn't going to go anywhere. He could sit in the backyard. We have a kind of fenced-in backyard at the new house that we got in 2017 or we moved to in 2017. It's got a fence, but it's one of those fences with the three-bar vertical or horizontal white bars where there's some gapping there. I do have to laugh at one story. He was a big boy. And we got to this new house, and the day we moved in, I had him roaming around the backyard. My dad was back there helping me set up a grill at the time, and he noticed the fence. Okay, it's fenced in. There are, however, areas where there are large gaps. In the back of the yard, the, the yard itself, the lawn, dips a little bit in a certain area where even a dog of his size could probably get under that. And my dad pointed to that back area where he was sniffing around and said, do you think he can get under that? And I said, yeah, maybe, but he's not going anywhere. Literally 10 seconds later, he was he was under that, wandered into the neighbor's yard. He quickly came back, though. He always came back. I never had any fear that we were going to have him go missing. And in the house that he grew up in, we had no fencing, and he would just go and sit outside in the front yard and stare off in a space or survey whatever he was surveying out there, and you could trust that he was never going to take off. That was the kind of dog he was. It was a difficult, difficult morning. It's been a crushing week. Devastated is an understatement, and that is why we did not have a podcast on Monday. Now we will get back into things, but I just wanted to make sure we got that out there because I said I think we teased on Friday. Here's what we'll talk about on Monday, and then just to have nothing there as from our perspective as the publishers of the podcast isn't great to not at least say something I wanted to make sure we kind of just got that out of the way at the beginning of this podcast. All right, not to bum you out. (laughs) Friday morning, let's go. Oh, Strange Brew's got a new podcast up. And in the first eight minutes, I'm sad. Let's talk about the Packers, shall we? Big weekend. What a difference. Three weeks makes? Four weeks makes? As Michael Scott once said in the office, my, how the turntables. We were talking going into Chargers week. About how that was going to be the most difficult stretch of the season. Chargers, Lions on the road on a short week, and then Kansas City at Lambeau primetime on Sunday Night Football. At that point, they had just lost to the Steelers, right? They were sitting at 3-6, and six, and remember we said, you can go back and load the podcast up. This is a situation now where we could be staring at a 3-9 and nine team by the end of this three-game run. The Chargers, Lions, Chiefs run. And at that point, we're probably looking at a top five, at least, maybe top four, top three pick in the NFL draft. And as a part of that week, we didn't talk about it. You could hear other podcasts talking about it, though, or the discussion on Twitter. If that's what happens, if you end up losing these next three and you're three and nine and you got a top five pick, are you looking at a quarterback in the draft? That's where we were. That was less than a month ago. And everything has changed. Everything has changed. They hang on against the Chargers, get a three-point win there. They got some help from some drop passes. Then they go into Detroit on Thanksgiving Day, which we talked about on the Friday podcast, as more than touchdown underdogs with an injury list a mile long against a first-place team at their place on a short week. And they play their most complete game of the year. And as we talked about on Friday, arguably the best regular season game in the Matt LaFleur era, given the circumstances, given the injuries, the youth of the team against an 8-2 team, a first-place team at their place on a short week with a Thanksgiving backdrop. The offense was clicking right out of the gate. The defense did enough. That late touchdown makes it look a little bit better in terms of final score. Defense did their job. Rashawn Gary was a menace defensively. And special teams even stepped up. They sniffed out that fake punt in the second quarter when it was whatever it was, fourth and three or fourth and four, and Detroit was just inside or outside of their own 20-yard line, even special teams were on point. All three phases played a role in that win. For that reason, encouragement and optimism among Packer fans has not been higher. You started this stretch at three and six. You've already won two. It's almost like you're playing with house money on Sunday. I don't want that to get misconstrued into thinking, oh, we're okay with a loss. You always want this team to win. Every game they are in, regardless of circumstance, we are always rooting for them to win. It does sort of feel like, though, you are playing with a little bit of house money on Sunday. They are around touchdown underdogs, depending on whatever book you look at. They are seven-point underdogs on some books, six and a half or six in some cases. We'll see where that ends up on Sunday before kickoff. You are at home, so being a touchdown underdog at home means that Vegas views this as firmly in favor of the Chiefs. And you're at a point where if you lose this game, you're 2-1 in that three-game stretch. I don't think this game on Sunday either will impact whether or not this team makes the playoffs. I suppose if they miss by a game and they lose the game, you could go back to this and say, well, it did matter, John. They lost that game, and that's maybe what cost them. When I look to could this team make the playoffs, which is a very real possibility, two things have happened since our last podcast on Friday that have helped immensely. The Bears went into Minnesota, and Josh Dobbs finally morphed into Josh Dobbs after playing above his skis for, what, three or four weeks in a row? He had a one-touchdown, four-interception game, and all of a sudden they're talking about maybe he's not the guy going forward because of that one game. Bears get a 12-10 win in what really was a Big Ten West game on Monday Night Football. That was that was an 11 a.m. Big Ten West game on Monday Night Football. Punt, 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 missed field goal, <laughs> oh, punt. That was Northwestern Iowa at 11 a.m. in early October on Big Ten Network. That helped the Packers, though. The Bears winning that game. That drops the Vikings to 6-6. and Then last night, Mike McCarthy in what turned out to be a very close game. Cowboys were favored by 10 at home they have to come back and get the win but they do that 41 to 35 over the Seahawks. The Seahawks are now 6 and 6. The bottom two teams in a very watered down NFC are number 6 seed Seahawks 6 and 6. Number 7 seed Vikings at 6 and 6. And there are the Packers at 5 and 6. You are even in the loss column and a half game out of a playoff spot and the other thing the Packers have going for them, the other two teams they're tied with right now the Rams and the Saints, they have the tiebreakers with. They have head-to-head wins over both of those teams that are right with them, a half game out of a playoff spot. They are firmly in the in the hunt part of the playoff picture graphic. If you lose on Sunday and you fall to 5-7, and seven, I guess it's going to be dependent on if you lose, how does it look? Do you lose by 21? And then all of a sudden people are saying, well, they they got lucky a couple games, but this is who they are. If you lose a close game... I still think people feel generally good about the direction of this team. If you lose a game by a possession late or you have the ball and you can't quite get the score to get ahead or your defense gives up points late and it gives the Chiefs a late lead and you lose 27-24 or 30-24 or something like that, it's going to it's going to differ how you feel depending on how they would lose if they lose. If they lose though and fall to 5 and 7, I don't think that that is going to be the determining factor as to whether or not they make the playoffs. What's going to determine whether or not this team makes the playoffs are the five games after this game on Sunday night. With the way the team is playing right now, you look at the remaining schedule after this Sunday, and you look at those as winnable games. Now, let's keep things tempered a bit. Shall we temper for a second? This is still the youngest team in the league. And even though they are gaining steam and they appear as though they are getting more and more confident and more comfortable and they've got that momentum behind them now. The list is long of professional sports teams, whether it's the NFL, NBA, Major League Baseball, whatever, where a young team starts to get their confidence, starts to get a little pep in their step and the momentum's pushing them forward. The list is long of those teams that then have a a humble strip. We'll say a humble strip. Not a rumble strip like on the highway, a humble strip where you lose to a team that you think maybe now we should have beaten. The five games after this Chiefs game, they're all winnable games. At New York against the Giants on Monday night, yes, you're on the road, but that's a 4-8 team with a third-string quarterback, even though Tommy DeVito's playing better. You've got after that, what, the Buccaneers matchup. You've got Carolina, one-win team that looked like they're going to get the number one overall pick and then hand it right off to the Bears. You've got that on Christmas Eve on the road. You've got the Vikings at home who are tailing off a bit now and what their situation will be at quarterback at that point, second to last week of the year, we don't know. And you've got a four-win Bears team coming to Lambeau Field for the regular season finale. As we discussed a few podcasts ago, who even knows what their target or what their goal is going to be in that final regular season game? They could be angling still for a top-five pick there, and we don't know who is all going to play. Justin Fields, is he going to play in that game? DJ Moore, how do they want to go into the offseason? We have no idea. Those last games are always kind of a coin flip in terms of who cares and who doesn't. Those on paper, with the way the team is playing right now, are all winnable games. They could easily go 5-0, and but they are the youngest team in the league. You can have a humble situation. You could get humbled and and you could hit the humble strip and end up losing a few of those games. You go to New York and Tommy DeVito puts together some stupid last-second drive in the fourth quarter and they win by a field goal. We don't know. How they perform, though, in those five games, that is going to determine, though, whether or not this team makes the playoffs. I don't know that this game is excited as we are for it and as great as it would be for them to win it or at least be in it late. As good as all of that would be for a young team that is gaining confidence, I don't think that a win or a loss this weekend is going to be what figures out whether or not this team is in the playoffs. How they perform in those five, right now, winnable games after that, that will determine whether or not they're punching a playoff ticket. I do think four and two gets them in, four and two gets them to nine and eight just based on the way the bottom half of the NFC looks. Nine and eight feels like it would have last year. That feels about where you're gonna have to be to get either the six or the seven seed. And they could get the sixth seed now too. That is also in play. For a while it was just the seven seed. Well what the Seahawks lost last night, you could be looking at a six or a seven seed. With that said, when you look at this matchup, is Taylor Swift going to be in attendance? That's also an X factor. I think she is. The rumblings I'm hearing from Green Bay. The rumblings from the people we know in Green Bay. Because if Taylor's there, you need a whole nother system in place. You need security detail. Everything's got to be ratcheted up a not It's like the president flying in. I do think she's going to be there. That's the number one thing about this game. <laughs> That's the number one factor as to which goes, if this game goes the Chiefs way or the Packers way. And the keys to the game, is Taylor going to be there or not? I do think she's going to be there. I would love, by the way, for a sports book to put a prop bet up if she is going to be there and we find that out before the game, which we probably will. I would love for any sports book out there right now to put a prop bet up of how many times the NBC cameras will cut to whatever luxury box that she is in. I did see a funny meme. Do you remember in 2021 when Rodgers had COVID and Love made his first ever start and it was at Arrowhead against the Chiefs? and his mom and his girlfriend were there. Remember they showed at the beginning of that game, they were talking about Jordan Love and then said, oh, and here's his mom and his girlfriend, whatever her name is, and they're ready to watch Jordan Love make his first ever start. And they zoomed out of that, and they literally put his mom – and his girlfriend in the last row. That's not hyperbole. It was literally the last row of Arrowhead Stadium, and that meme went all around Twitter. We couldn't have gotten Jordan Love's mom and his girlfriend better tickets for his first ever start. It would be very funny if they put Taylor Swift with just the unwashed, with the guy who's about 80 pounds overweight, shirt off, beard unkempt, Painted G on his stomach or something. Two fisting, 16-ounce PBRs. Putting Taylor next to that guy in the last row as sort of a return serve for what they did to Jordan Love's mom and his girlfriend at Arrowhead a couple years ago. would be funny. She will be in a luxury box, though. I would love a prop bet of how many times the camera cuts to her during the course of the game. What would you put it at? I know you're going to say oh, 100, 1,000, a 1 million. What's an actual number? I think an actual number would be 12.5. the amount of camera cuts to Taylor if she is, in fact, in attendance. And she may be in the same box as Simone Biles. It could be a Simone Biles and Taylor luxury box with Simone Biles. She's been to a bunch of games now with Jonathan Owens, especially since he's been starting. That would be two different worlds colliding as well. Two of the most followed people across any social media platform in the same luxury box. I feel 12.5, 11.5, 12.5 would be good. The Taylor subplot aside, who cares? Who cares? The Taylor subplot aside, when you look at this matchup, the Chiefs haven't been overwhelming this year. They are 8-3. They're the reigning Super Bowl champions for a reason. We talked about this maybe after the week one matchup. It must have been the Friday podcast after the Lions-Chiefs game that opened the year. And remember, that was a game the Lions won, and we kind of talked about, boy, you wonder if the Chiefs flew a little bit too close to the sun, thinking that Patrick Mahomes and this offense— with Andy Reid, could make any wide receiver good. Their wide receivers looked so rough in that game. That was my topic, or a topic we brought up on that Friday podcast, of did they maybe let a few too many guys, a little few too many pro bowlers or all pros walk away, and how are they going to score points? They've got Kelsey obviously going. Pacheco's a tough running back, and we know the Packers are bad against the run. The Chiefs' offense, though, is not the Chiefs' offense of three or four years ago or even last year where they're averaging around 30 or more than 30 points per game. What's kind of been carrying them is their defense. Their defense is the only defense in the league that has allowed 25 points or less in every game they've played. That is a top-five defense. When we think back to the early part of the Mahomes era, not that we're in a in that late of a part, Was he, seven or eight years in the league? It's not that far down the road. When I think back, though, to those teams in the early part of his career, those were teams that were scoring 30-plus a game, and they were giving up 27-20 a game. Kind of the reverse so far this year, where the offense has scuffled a bit, but the defense has carried them. That's a storyline going into Sunday. The injuries, like they were against Detroit, are a storyline again. Very similar to the Detroit matchup. When the injury reports came out on Wednesday, every single Packer name was on there. It doesn't sound like Aaron Jones is going to play. A.J. Dillon may not play. Patrick Taylor, shout out Pat, might be the number one RB1 heading into this primetime matchup. Packers have injuries on defense with Jair. He's a question mark again going into the weekend. It's a long list. It's a very similar list to what the list was heading into the Detroit game. And similar to the Lions, the Chiefs have like four or five guys on their injury report. Most of them are not considered impact players. When you look at the reigning Super Bowl champions, yes, they're on the road, but you compare the injury reports and they're healthier than the Packers are, it's going to be tough. It is going to be difficult for the Packers to get this win. I thought the same thing going into the Detroit game, and out of nowhere, the Packers put together one of their most complete performances of the year. One of those things about watching a team this young is you just don't know. You don't know when they're going to get it together or if they'll get it together. It can surprise you in certain games. It can let you down in certain games, which may happen once we get past this Chiefs game, as we talked about. My hope for this game is that it is a game in the fourth quarter. I would love for them to win. I really just want to continue to see progress, which is what we've discussed ad nauseum on this podcast, win or lose. You'd love for it to be a close game late and for us to continue to see progress for the offensive line to keep playing better for Jordan love to stay on the track that he's on. And he's got what five touchdowns, no picks down his last couple games and seems to be getting more and more comfortable in the pocket. You'd love just for all of that to continue a win would be blow the top off the place I don't know if you can contain enthusiasm if they get a win on Sunday just keep it close give yourself a chance at the end and continue to grow and then regardless of what the outcome is of this game the playoffs will be on the line starting the week after what you do in those final four games can you go three and two can you go four and one could you go five and oh in those final five games in those winnable games That will be what determines whether or not this team can sneak into a 6 or a 7 seed. Should be a fun one, though. It should be a fun atmosphere at Lambeau. I was surprised to see today on StubHub that tickets are still under $100. I speculated on the air this morning. Remember we talked about that with the Rams game, what was that, four weeks ago? And you could get $25 tickets to an October Lambeau field game before kickoff? and they've been sitting pretty much under 100 bucks now where in most years when it was Rodgers or Favre secondary market you'd see tickets for even ordinary games at 150, 175, 200 division games, 200 plus on StubHub or Ticket King or whatever you're using. I look today thinking that this would be with new renewed enthusiasm for the Packers and the reigning Super Bowl champions and the Taylor Swift subplot I figured they would be in that 150 175 $200 range. Maybe because it's prime time and people just don't have a pallet anymore for being at an NFL stadium until 10 p.m. or 11 p.m. and getting home at 2 a.m. and going to work on Monday. That could be a factor. Tickets are still under $100. If you go to that newly renovated area that's way high up there, you can get them still for $92 or $93 bucks right now on StubHub. It is a, what, $715, $720 kickoff. And, yeah, right now we'll see where it ends up when we get to kickoff. Right now the Packers are six-and-a-half-point underdogs Heading into the weekend. We just hope to continue to see this resurgence from a very young Packer team. Let's talk quickly about Badger football because we didn't do the podcast on Monday. Hey, we had fun in that game against Minnesota. It wasn't fun early, but they put 28 on the board. We kind of dairy rated At one point in that game when they scored that fourth touchdown, and I thought they'd get more. They didn't. They won 28-14. Look like they might get to 35 or 42. When they scored that fourth touchdown, I said to myself, is this it? Are we dairy raiding? I think I'm having fun. Is this a dairy raid? Are we dairy raiding? Solid game from Tanner Mordecai. Braylon Allen had his best game of the year. He looked as healthy as he has ever looked. His burst looked like the burst we saw from him in previous years. What would he go for? 175, 178, and a couple touchdowns. They get the win, and they bring Paul Bunyan's axe back to Madison. We talked about it before the Nebraska game. They have a chance, or maybe we talked about it after the Nebraska win. They have a chance to end the year, what has been a disappointing year. We were using the word failure. Maybe I won't do that anymore. We'll just leave it at disappointment. We'll leave it at a D word, not an F word. It's been a disappointing year. However, if you win the Freedom Trophy, which they did, and you bring Paul Bunyan's axe back, which they did, and you win whatever bowl game that they're going to end up in, it looks like the Music City Bowl. looks like that's the most likely destination against an SEC team. If you're a Badger fan that travels with the team, though, That's a pretty good bowl game. They end up in Arizona or Florida all the time. They would be in Nashville, which is a very fun city, on December 30th. So it would be a Saturday. You're knocking on the door of all the New Year's Eve, New Year's Day bowl games. You're adjacent to that. You're in Nashville. It's a Saturday night. You can make a long weekend out of it. Probably have a couple of off days built in there with New Year's Eve and New Year's Day. That's not too shabby. For all the random crappy bowls they could go to. That would be on the short list of bowl games that I would like to attend. I may. I may attend. December 30th. Not written in stone yet. It sounds like that's the trajectory, though. December 30th, Music City Bowl, Nashville, and then they'd play probably Auburn or somebody from the SEC. If you win that game, then, you are entering the offseason on an uptick, having won two trophy games, the biggest of which was getting the axe back and beating P.J. Fleck. Then you win a bowl game. You're sitting at 8-5 and five then, all told, on the year. Still a letdown year or a disappointment year. However, there is a bit of momentum building toward the offseason. The other two storylines for the Badgers this week were Braylon Allen leaving. Makes total sense. His stats this year still kind of shocked me. Maybe we talked about that a week or two ago. I did not expect him to be over five yards a carry. And then with his great game against Minnesota, he ends up with pretty good numbers. He is just short of 1,000 yards. He had double-digit touchdowns, over five yards of carry. And he ends his career in Wisconsin, where you'd have to say he's probably B-tier running back. A very productive, really enjoyable running back. I would not put Braylon Allen on, of course, the Ron Dane level or the Melvin Gordon level or the Jonathan Taylor level. Maybe not even the Monte Ball level. I had to go back. We were talking about that on the air. When I got to Monte Ball's name, I thought, eh, maybe he's there. Maybe Braylon's at that Monte Ball level. Not at the Melvin Gordon, Jonathan Taylor, Dane level. Perhaps at the Monte Ball level. And then I went back and looked at Monte Ball's stats for this team. He was there, 12, 11, 10, 09 to 2012. His 2011 and 2012 seasons where he became the featured back are preposterous. (laughs) Go back and look at his stats in 2011. That 2011 team, how did that 2011 team lose three games? That will forever mystify me. How did they lose three games? With the offense they had, and they scored 80 points against Indiana, and Russell Wilson in the transfer year loaded at wide receiver, loaded at running back, huge offensive line, good defense. How did they end up losing 3 games and then losing that Rose Bowl? That should have been a national championship team. Monte Ball in 2011 rushed for just short of 2000 yards. He had 600 yards receiving, so almost or a little over 2500 yards total. He had 33 rushing touchdowns and an additional nine or six or seven? Let me go back and look receiving touchdowns he had almost 40 total touchdowns and I forgot he was at the Heisman ceremony that year I don't know how I didn't recall that he didn't get it obviously I think he finished the last of the however many guys there were at that time four or five guys he was there though for those reasons it's probably tough to even put Braylon out the Monte Ball level then Monte Ball in 2012 had an 1800 yard year his career took an odd turn then and there was substance abuse once he got to the NFL and it's a really sad story after that he's gotten his life together since I just forgot about how spectacular those last two years were. For that reason, I can't even put Braylon in that category. I would put Braylon in that Anthony Davis kind of category. Remember him? He was a guy who gave you 12, 13, 1400 kind of yards. Injuries were a part of Braylon Allen as well. One thing that should never be forgotten about Braylon Allen's legacy at Wisconsin as a Wisconsin kid, as a Fond du Lac kid, whose dream it was to be at running back U and to be the next big running back for the Badgers, One thing that should never be forgotten about his time in Madison is that he could have left, easily could have left during this coaching transition. Paul Christ, who recruited him in that offense, that style of bruising, running 60 times a game, that was out, and he knew that with Luke Fickle coming in and Phil Longo and the Dairy Raid and opening things up and getting in the spread and getting Mordecai the transfer quarterback and bringing in the wide receivers, he saw the writing on the wall. He, he knew he was not going to get the amount of carries he normally got, and he knew he was going to have to play in an offensive system that was not suited to the kind of player that he was. Easily could have gone to any other power program, had a huge year, And I don't know if he helps his draft stock. Ultimately, I think he ends up in about the same spot he's going to be at now, which is probably third round. Could be, I guess, as early as late second round, probably third round, maybe fourth round. I don't know if he goes somewhere else and has a huge year. If he improves his draft stock that much, maybe a couple spots here or there. He very easily, though, could have gone out the back door and said, this is not what I signed up for. This is an offense that doesn't really know how to utilize my skills, which they finally reluctantly did in the last couple of weeks. It's almost like Luke Fickle and Phil Longo just took, let out a heavy sigh and said, well, I guess we should just run the damn ball. <laughs> I guess that's what. I guess that those are the players we have. We may as well just run. Quit trying to fit the square peg in the round hole for the remainder of the year and just run the ball, and they did, and did so successfully. So he easily could have left and said, later, out. He didn't. He stayed for the transition. He tried to get this program as smooth as it could be through a transition year as their most skilled player on offense, which he was, even with the injuries. And he stuck it out for that final year. We all know, if you follow sports, the lifespan, the shelf life of a running back and the amount of time that you can make money. And he made money in college. He had very early NIL deals. He probably made seven figures during his time in Madison. Maybe even, well, I don't think he made more than seven figures. He probably was into the seven figures, though. He has made some money. The window to make money in the NFL as a running back is extremely short. One contract, maybe two if you're lucky, and you just can't use up those miles. You only get so many miles on those tires as a running back. There's only so much tread on those tires, and you don't get to replace them like we do with an actual car. He cannot afford to go through another year of that kind of Big Ten punishment, especially in this offense that really doesn't fit what he is. To burn up that abuse and the amount of hits he's going to absorb and that tread on the tires, those miles on those tires, it makes no sense for him to do that another year of college. What is he now, 20? Remember when he was 17? I think he's 20. I think he now is 20. And he will enter the NFL draft, so he is gone. I do feel that we are going to see Chez Malusi for one more year if he can make it back from this injury. They took him off of the senior day program, which is notable. Chez... As we talked about early in the year, his style of running, and he is a better receiver out of the backfield than Braylon Allen is, he fits more the mold of that air raid, dairy raid offense, and it was obvious early on that they preferred to use him when they got in those passing situations. With no real other running back in the system right now, it feels pretty likely that Chez is going to be back for, uh, what, sixth year? They all get that COVID year. That's a free year and then he could probably add a grad school year, or a grad student year, and come back for one more year. With no natural successor to Braylon Allen, it would make sense then to see Ches Malusi come back. Quarterback Miles Burkett, the Franklin product, also announced his transfer. He was another guy who probably saw the writing on the wall during this transition period, and they brought in Evers, even though he beat out Evers on the depth chart. They, he brought in all those four-star quarterback guys, Braylon, or what's the what was the Brayden Locke, and Nick Evers, And they had Mordecai the transfer. If none of that would have happened, and it would be Leonard as the head coach or somebody like that, I believe Miles Burkett would have gotten a shot maybe this year. He stuck it out because, like Braylon Allen, he's a Wisconsin kid. He wanted to be the quarterback, the starting quarterback for the Wisconsin Badgers. He stuck it out. Didn't work out for him this year. He hits the transfer portal. Best of luck to him. He will find success. I do not know at what program it's going to be, if it's going to be – Mac kind of program or some mid-conference situation, maybe, where he's going to be able to go in and compete and maybe start next year. He will have success, though. It just didn't work out for him, especially with the transition now to the Luke Fickle era. Those are just a couple of other Badger notes here as we get set for whatever bowl announcement we'll get. We'll talk in picks a bit about championship weekend. After that, then all the bowl chips will fall. But it sounds to me like it's going to be the Music City Bowl. Let's talk about the Bucs. An interesting week, the in-season tournament, the finale of pool play on Tuesday. They were in Miami with that hideous court, that red court, that was, it was like the Kenny Rogers Roaster Seinfeld episode. It was burned into your eyes. No Jimmy Butler in that game, which shows you how seriously some of these teams are taking the in-season tournament. Bucks had to get a win to, to guarantee that they move on out of pool play. They did. They came back late in the fourth quarter, which is what they've been doing all year. Say what you want about this team right now, and it's an up-and-down ride still, and Giannis and Dame are still trying to figure it out, and Adrian Griffin, first-year head coach, still trying to figure things out. They kind of lollygag or sleepwalk through the first three quarters. This team in the fourth quarter, though, has been solid, and we saw that again on Tuesday as they beat the Heat. They won pool play. Now they're on to the knockout round. I thought every knockout round game was in Vegas. I was wrong. They are hosting the quarterfinal knockout round game with the Knicks on Tuesday at Pfizer Forum. If they win that, then they go to Vegas, and in all likelihood, the Celtics play the Pacers on Tuesday in Boston. If the Celtics win and the Bucs win on Tuesday, then they will play each other at a neutral site in the semifinal round on Thursday. Now I'm starting to get interested. If you add an extra celtics bucks game, they're already going to play four times this year, adding an extra bucks celtics game at a neutral court now I'm a little intrigued. You got my attention a little bit now with this in-season tournament. Then they were on the road in Chicago last night, lost a bad game. This is a bad loss. And there are going to be bad losses this year. Every team, no matter how good they are, they have bad losses. Losses where you say, how could they lose to a five-win Bulls team, especially when the Bulls did not have Zach Levine or DeMar DeRozan, their two best players playing. On paper, at a team with five wins and their two best players out, and the Bucks playing all their guys, playing Middleton, playing Giannis, playing Dame, that's got to be a win. Once again, they were sleepwalking through the first three quarters. And what they learned on Thursday is you can't do that every game. You can't flip the switch in the fourth quarter and have it work out every time if that's the only quarter that you're going to play hard in. They did it in the fourth quarter, and they did the final six minutes of that game last night. They did play about as perfect as you can play. They were down by as many as 12 with, what, seven minutes to go. Dame comes back in. The defense turns it up a little bit. And they end up with a 106-103 to 103 lead with five seconds left. And it looked like they were going to do it again, that they were going to just close this game in the fourth quarter and get a win. Then Alex Caruso, who I would love to see in a Bucks jersey, and he showcased why last night. He's a not a bad spot-up shooter. In this case, he was a very good contested shooter and out-of-his-normal spot shooter. He can defend one through four. He's long. He has some tenacity. The rumors have been that that would be a guy the Bucks should look to get because of the defensive deficiencies. I don't know what it would cost them to get him. Get him. Just get him. Get him. He hits a tough three that ties it. That's what you can't count on. If you're going to just sleepwalk through three quarters, flip a switch in the fourth, you can't always count on, even if you play good defense, the other team missing shots. That's not something you can count on in the NBA like you can in college basketball. Caruso curling about three feet beyond the arc just nails a tough three. Goes to overtime. Bucks didn't have the energy in overtime. I think they thought they had that game won at 106-103, and they couldn't get back the momentum in overtime. It's an ugly loss. It's a bad loss. But it wasn't an in-season tournament game, so maybe they didn't care. What if we did an in-season tournament that lasted the whole year, and every NBA team plays 82 games, and at the end of the in-season tournament, you get into a bracket, eight teams from each conference. Okay, Obviously. What if we did that? What if we did just a whole regular season was an in-season tournament? Because it was not an in-season tournament game, the Bucs just didn't care on Thursday. They have one more game before that quarterfinal game. Is it on the road in Atlanta? They take on Trey Young and the Hawks. Let me just see where we are with this one. I'm pretty sure they have a game on Saturday. Lost to the Bulls, 120-113 to 113 final. Bucks also had 22 turnovers in Thursday's game ugly across the board Dane was sort of passive at the end of the game too oh they're at home at home against Atlanta seven o'clock on Saturday and then the knockout round game on Tuesday then we'll see what happens with them on Thursday if they can make it to Vegas and if they can't do they play just another scheduled game I don't know how that works how that all plays out you do end up playing extra games I believe if you are moving on in the in-season tournament you may end up playing 83 or 84 games in the regular season one of those kind of weeks, though, for the Bucs. They are 13-6 and after the loss to Chicago last night. Let's talk very briefly about Badgers Marquette. They both won in blowout fashion against their Cupcakes this week. That sets up Badgers Marquette at the Kohl Center this year. Marquette did move up to number three, which we kind of hypothesized about after beating number one Kansas, then losing by three to number two Purdue. They actually move up at 6-1 and one, with that record of 6-1. and one. Badgers are 5-2. and two. Badgers have won the last two of these matchups. I'm fairly certain. I had a texter ask me on the B93 text line this morning. How do I determine who to root for in a game like this? Because I didn't go to either school. I know I've got Badger friends out there. This is a this is a blood rivalry. If you went to Marquette and you went to Madison, these two teams hate each other. Like I kind of thought last year when Marquette made the NCAA tournament and they had what a two seed. I kind of was texting a group chat with a bunch of Badger alumni, I assumed that they would root for the in-state team. I was very wrong about that. They did. They wished nothing but ill on Marquette. It is an intense rivalry if you went to either school. If you are like me, which a lot of people are, and you've rooted for both and you didn't go to either school, so you have no firm allegiance there, who do you root for in a game like this? My response is always, I root for the team that has the most to gain by winning this game. Who improves their resume the most? Who has the chance to go the farthest this year? In this case, it would be Marquette. They are the number three team in the country. They have a legitimate chance, if they stay healthy, of being a Sweet 16, Elite 8, maybe Final 4 team. They have a legitimate chance, if they can continue to win and be healthy at some point this year, they could be the number one or number two team in the country. They stand to gain more by winning this game. And I do have, I've got familial connections to Marquette. My sister went there. Not that she would have any idea where they're ranked right now. We should call her and see if she has any idea. If we asked her on a, from 1 to 50, where is Marquette ranked right now? She'd have no clue. She went there. My cousin on my dad's side worked at Marquette and worked in the athletic department. For that reason, some of the first live sports games I ever went to were Marquette games in the early to mid-90s when Jim McElveen was playing there. I thought that was the coolest thing to be at the Bradley Center, seeing them play Conference USA games. I've got connections that way to Marquette. Obviously, as a Wisconsin guy, I have rooted for the Badgers, both football and basketball and now volleyball and hockey. That's where we were, a volleyball hockey school. I root for anything wearing red for Wisconsin. I just, I always look at this game as who can gain the most? Who needs this more? Now, you could, I guess you could spin zone it and say, well, John, if the Badgers beat the number three team in the country, that improves their ranking. That may get them into the tournament on their own. So, could it mean more to them? And we assume Marquette's making the tournament anyway. So, maybe it means nothing to them. I guess maybe I just talk myself into the Badgers now. (laughs) I'm going to root for Marquette. I'm rooting for Marquette. I will not be upset if the Badgers win, though. If you're like me and you have no firm allegiance either way, it's a win-win ultimately. But that's always how I viewed it. Who could gain the most? Who is going to go the furthest this year? Who can use this win the most? Yeah, I guess you could say the Badgers then. All right, whatever. Well, let's not get too deep into it. We'll end on a quick Brewer note, and then we'll make some picks. Devin Williams, reliever of the year. The Brewers have had the reliever of the year now. Five of the last six years. That's insane. Hater has three. Williams has two. Williams has two years left of team control, whereas Adamus. And Woodruff, who's now gone, and Burns, they're all entering their final year of team control of those seven years of team control that are in their final year. Williams has two more. I know we've talked often about who could be on the trade block. Should they trade Adamas and Burns? Probably going to trade them. Winter meetings are not that far away. You could trade both of them and try to maximize what your return will be. You could, I guess, wait and see how things shake down in the first half of the schedule and then trade them at the deadline for 50 cents or 60 cents on the dollar. Williams has two years of control left. I do think, though, if someone offered them something for him, his value is never going to be higher than it is right now. He just won the reliever of the year, two-time NL reliever of the year. He has two years of control. Uh, maybe. I had not really entertained that idea as much as the Burns-Adamus conversation of would they trade Devin Williams, but if someone offered them a great package and you got two elite prospects back for him, I think you'd have to do it. The other big story, and it maybe resolves itself today, Jackson Churio, the number two prospect in all of baseball, and number one on some graphs. He's 19 years old. He has rapidly burned through the Brewer Farm system. He spent most of his time at AA last year, went to AAA at the end of the year, slow start there for him. Then he got it together. He got up to speed and was tearing it up at AAA before the season ended. My assumption was always that he would begin the year at AAA, and at some point this year we would see him. Now, as we just talked about, The economics of baseball. You have, when you call a player up and you start their service time, they are under your control for seven seasons. Four of them, the salaries are built in, and then you have the three arbitration years where, depending on what they did the first four years and every subsequent year in that three-year run, they can negotiate a number, the Brewers negotiate a number, sometimes they come to an agreement, and sometimes they go to a court hearing, and someone will then figure out, uh, an arbiter will figure out, Who wins there? Who gets that final number? That was the whole thing with Corbin Burns last year in the 750K. We talked about this on the podcast not long ago. I think the Brewers have to start to follow the Atlanta Braves model of economics, of how they sign their young talent. What you're looking to do in a small market team is to get value on what you think are your best pieces of young talent. What the Braves have been doing, and what the Brewers kind of did with Ryan Braun, Although they saw Braun. I think Braun played a year or two before they bought him out of the rest of his arbitration years and then tacked on a few years after that to have him beyond those seven years. I'm pretty sure that must have been after the 2008 season they did with Braun. But the idea is the same. The Braves have been doing that with their young guys. Acuna and Albies and all those young guys. They're signing them to these long-term deals that give the player more money early and then later in the contract, it's a better value for the team. We have not seen Jackson Churio at the Major League level yet. It sounds like the Brewers are offering him an eight-year, $80 to $90 million deal with two additional option years for the team. And that's big. They are team option years. That's what the reports are. Eight years plus two team option years after that. What that value would be for the two option years, if you pick both of them up, I have no idea. Eight years, 80 to $90 million. This would be the biggest contract ever signed – by a player that has not had a single at bat, has not played a second of baseball at the major league level. But as we discussed when we did that, I think it was right after the season ended or maybe toward the end of the year. This is what small market teams have to do because the traditional path is, okay, we bring, we call Jackson Churio up. We've got his built-in pay scale the first four years. And then once he gets to those Arb years, we've got to kind of see where we're at as a team and, we probably aren't going to sign him beyond that seventh year. Do we have to trade him? You know, what are the options there? That's what they're doing with Burns right now, and that's what they're doing with the domas right now. That's what they did with Prince back in 2011. They had to roll the dice on that final year and knew they were getting nothing back for him. This is the way to expand your window, though, if you are a small market baseball team, because if he signs this deal, it sounds like he's going to, you have him for eight years instead of seven, and then you could have him if it's just a team option, which it has to be, you could have him for up to 10 years. From Jackson Churio's perspective, instead of making $300,000 or $400,000 the first year he's called up, he'll make $10 million. From the Brewers' perspective, if he is what we think he is, and he is going to be an all-star caliber player, let's not say Hall of Fame or anything crazy like that. If he is going to be what he looks to be, an elite outfielder with a power bat and speed to boot, a a true five-tool player, if that's what he is, you are going to pay him a lot more in those first four years, those first five or six years. But then when you get to year eight and year nine and year ten, you are getting an outstanding value at $10, 11 or $12 million a year. For Jackson Churio, if it doesn't pan out for him, which it happens in baseball with a lot of these elite prospects, oh, all of a sudden I can't hit at the major league level. Lewis Brinson, a good example of that. Former Brewer prospect who they traded to Miami to get Yelich back. Never turned into anything. I remember Brewers fans when they traded Brinson. Oh, my God, how could you trade Lewis Brinson? He's one of the top prospects in baseball. He went to Miami and did nothing. Batted sub-200 for two or three years. I'm pretty sure he's out of the league. If that's what happens to Churio, he at least has almost $100 million in his back pocket. The gamble for the Brewers is if he doesn't turn out, if he is a Lewis Brinson, or he is a Matt Laporta that they traded to get CeCe back in 2008, If he's one of those guys, then you're paying him $100 million and he may not even be in the league anymore or whatever it ends up being. He's hitting two ten, and he doesn't have the power and he can't catch up to major league pitching. That's the risk. But as a small market team with radio contracts and TV contracts that just are dwarfed by the media market contracts in LA and New York and Chicago, you have to take these gambles because you have to give yourself the biggest window you can and you have to then Roll the dice on a guy like Jackson Churia, where if you just do business as usual and you call him up and start his service time, in all likelihood, he is going to be gone before that last year of the seven years of team control. So now if he signs this, instead of a six-year window with him being a cornerstone, you would have a 10-year window. And yeah, you're paying more early, but you're getting a great deal late. It sounds like that once he gets his physical, it sounds like that could be a done deal. And you know what else it also does? In an offseason that has been... Awful to say the least with Woodruff getting released and Craig Council turning heel and going to Chicago for more money and all the bad stuff that's happened really since they clinched the playoff spot. This gives them a little bit of positivity. This gives them a piece of marketing. This makes it very likely that Jackson Churio is on the opening day roster. So, depending on what happens with Burns and depending on what happens with Adamas and maybe, yes, we're in the middle of a rebuild, at least you can say, hey, look at this guy. Look at Jackson Churio. Come to the ballpark to see Jackson Churio. If he signs this deal, he will be on the opening day roster because service time won't matter anymore, and he will be in a Brewer jersey on whatever day, March 30th or April 1st or whatever it is. That... Sounds like it will be finalized today. Okay, let's make some picks. Here comes the money. Here we go. Money talk. Here comes the money. Never tell me the odds. If someone gives you 10000 to one on anything, you take it. Yeah, that's a cool G, Daddy. Oh, now you got to let it ride. Hey, hey, another winning week for the crew. Four, one, and one last week. I would have to go back and look at what our record was at the end of last year. We've surpassed that, I'm pretty, pretty certain. We are now 38-26-3. and three. We are 12 units up. I've got five. It's championship weekend in college football. I am going to start with a pick for tonight, the Pac-12 championship game. This will determine a spot in the college football playoff. The winner of tonight's game, number five, Oregon, number three, Washington. The winner will be in the college football playoff, and the loser will be out. Washington is number three. They are unbeaten. They beat Oregon early this year. It was in Washington. This is neutral site. The only loss Oregon has on the year is to this Husky team. Michael Penix Jr., the quarterback for Washington, is a Heisman favorite or at least a finalist. Somehow the Huskies are catching 10 points in this game. I I do not know how. I Neutral sight, and if you're saying Oregon is just better overall and then you take the home field equation out of it, still tends a lot. For an unbeaten team with a potential Heisman quarterback, I am taking Washington plus 10 in the Pac-12 championship tonight. I am also going to take Michigan... <laughs> Did you see some of the bets on Iowa for this Big Ten championship game? This is not a joke in any way, shape, or form. It's not this anymore, but it was at the beginning of the week. You can bet on a lot of things in football, and one of the things that you can bet on is a team point total. Not total points combined for the game, but what an individual team will score on that game. Like, I think the Packer team total for the Packer Chiefs game is 19.5. Can they score 20 or 20 and a half? maybe? Can they score 21 over-under? The over-under... Four points in the first half for Iowa in the Big Ten championship game was a half a point. Can they score one point? And that was also the over-under for the second half total points. I have never in my life. That offense is an abject disaster. I never in my life have seen, nor will we ever see again, a line like that. 0.5 points for an NF, not an NHL game, not a hockey game. points in a college football game over-under for a first-half and second-half team total. Yeah, I think it's now at 2.5, so it's a field goal. Can they get a field goal in either half? Michigan is minus 22. They're going to blow this team out. This is, I mean, Iowa can't score. Iowa's got a solid defense. When you have a solid defense and zero offense, and you're taking on the number, what, two team in the country that can play it both ways, they're just going to grind them into dust. This is going to be a 35-0, 35-3 if you have the over on the half points. This is going to be an absolute boat race. Michigan minus 22, taking that as well. In the NFL, I'm not touching Georgia-Alabama. That's, to me, the biggest game of the weekend and the biggest game that will determine the college football playoff. Georgia's number one. Alabama's number eight. Georgia's favored by five. I can't get a read on this game, so I'm not going to touch it. I thought about the over-under. If Alabama wins this game, that's the biggest wrench that you could throw into the college football playoff picture because then I don't know what you do. Georgia has not lost a game in two years. They are the two-time defending champions. If Georgia loses this game, are are they out? Are they out at 12-1 and one as the two-time defending champions? Alabama, you have to put in if they win this game and they're 12-1 and one and they just beat the two-time reigning champions. Do they both get in then and then somebody else gets squeezed? I have no idea. Assume Michigan's in because there's no way they're losing to Iowa. The winner of tonight's game is in. Michigan is in. The winner of Georgia, Alabama is certainly in. And then what do you do after that? You've got Texas in the mix, Florida State, even though their quarterback's out, if they win, they're right now the number four team. Do they get squeezed out as an undefeated team? With a backup quarterback now, and because they have a backup quarterback, that's why they'd get squeezed out and both the SEC teams get in. Alabama winning that game is going to be the biggest headache for the college football playoff that there could be. I'm staying away from that game. I can't get a reading that game at all. If you put a gun to my head, I'd say Georgia minus five, but I'm not touching it. In the NFL, we've got the Colts minus one at Tennessee. We are not going to win our Tennessee over-under bet on season wins, I don't think. It's seven and a half. Seems like they're pretty checked out. Gardner Minshew's playing okay. No Jonathan Taylor for the Colts. That's why this game is so tight. It's a coin flip. I'm taking the Colts on the road against a Titans team that appears checked out. This line also makes no sense to me. The Niners, 8-3, and three, are on the road against Philadelphia. The Eagles are catching home points as the number one team in the NFL. That's how good Vegas thinks the Niners are? I don't know, man. If you're giving me the number one team in the NFL with the odds on favor to win the MVP and Jalen Hurts and they're at home and I'm getting points, I'm taking them every time. Plus three. Eagles plus three at home against the Niners. And then here's one of those like we talked about with the Patriots-Giants game last week that I don't even know if I'm going to watch, but I will bet on it. Cardinals in Pittsburgh. I'm going under. Never bet the under. <laughs> Always bet the over unless it's this matchup. Steelers have an elite defense, an offense that can't do anything. The over-under is 42. I am taking the under on 42. Under 42 Cardinals, Steelers, Eagles plus three at home against the Niners, Colts minus one in Tennessee, and then in college football, Washington plus 10 tonight and Michigan minus 22 tomorrow. That'll do it for us here. we will be back after it, hopefully on a victory Monday. We'll break that down, and we'll probably know the bowl designation for the Badgers by then. Have a happy, safe weekend. We'll chat with you then.